You're listening to the Straight to Video Podcast with Rob Lane. We only went and did it. Well, you did it. 200 episodes of the Straight to Video Podcast. I can't begin to tell you how cool it is to hit this milestone. It's been a long time coming, but so glad and grateful to be here and have you all on board and listening. This show began in the summer of 2020, and to be honest, as much as I set out to do this long term, the thought of 200 shows was just so far off, but it's been a brilliant ride already, and I feel like we're only just getting started. So thank you to all of you who's got things this far. So what do we have for you on this show? Well, today's guest lands this slot for a couple of reasons. When I started this podcast, I had a list of people and friends, mostly musicians, who I wanted to get on this show, and today's guest was one of them. But as you'll hear, or if you're familiar with him already, he's a bit of a loose cannon in the best possible way and pretty tough to nail down to a date and time. So it's actually took me two years to get him on this show. But to be fair, it was worth the wait. So on episode 200 of the Straight to Video podcast, I get to welcome my mate, my bandmate for a bunch of tours in the late 2000s, and without doubt one of the most colourful characters in all of hard rock, Mr. Mark Torian of The Bullet Boys. Now I don't know how familiar you are with Bullet Boys, three albums on Warner Brothers Records in the late 80s and early 90s before they split, and Mark has carried the name ever since, releasing albums and touring relentlessly. Like most bands though, drama followed them around, and after a recent reunion with the original members, it would be short-lived to many rock fans' disappointment, including me, because to see these four guys on stage together would have been nothing short of a bomb going off. But it wasn't meant to be, yet Mark bounced back and within just a couple of weeks had a new lineup out on the road fulfilling shows plus they released a new single called holy fuck recently and have a bunch of dates lined up to see out 2022 this though and one of the reasons i really wanted mark on the show since the podcast started is that the bullet boys part of his journey is really just scratching the surface after touring with this guy for over three years i will pick up snippets of his history and as a fan myself dived more into what he's done and where he's been Yes, Mark gets a lot of flack for being so outspoken, but his journey and experiences even before Bullet Boys in the late 80s will blow your mind and I've been wanting to quiz him on them for a long, long time and finally got to do it on this show. We talk about so much from where he grew up, his relationship with his family, his first steps into music, which alone are crazy. He wasn't the kid getting off the bus on Sunset Boulevard with big hard rock dreams. This guy would sign to Motown Records, he'd meet the guys in Van Halen and go to their tour rehearsals, he'd audition for Ozzy Osbourne, playing Rat and with Elder Barge, almost cross paths with Michael Jackson whilst hearing the song Somebody's Watching Me, whilst having that song played to him by Rockwell himself, and he would record the song Sweetest Victory from Rocky IV. Did you ever know that was Mark Torian singing that? I could go on, but I'm going to let Mark fill you in on all the details because he's a much better storyteller than me, but I'm pretty sure you're going to love hearing about it all. But as always, please show some love and support for our friends Dead Skull Coffee and their fine rock and roll ground or full bean coffee, which you can grab 15% off by placing an order on their website, deadskullcoffee.co.uk, and adding the promo code STV on checkout. Richie and Mark have supported this show from its early days, so I'm always grateful for that and hope you'll check them out. Alright, let's do this. If you enjoy this talk with Mark, then please show some support for the Bullet Boys. Their website is bulletboysofficial.com, but Mark is very active on all social media platforms for the band, so be sure to let him know how much you enjoyed this chat. So, right now, after two years, let's ride and enjoy my talk on episode 200 of the Straight to Video podcast with Mark Torian. 
Hey, bud, how are you? I'm good, mate. How's things? Good, man. Just getting up. I had a late night writing last night, so trying to kick off the cobwebs. It's all good, mate. How are you, man? I'm all right. It's good to hear from you. Always, always. It's been a long time coming for this one, right? Two years, brother. <laughs> I've been ah. chasing you. <laughs> oh, my gosh, bro. It's been nuts. Just a bit. Through COVID and everything else. And You've been through the wars, mate. One thing after another. Man, you ain't kidding, Robbie. <laughs> it's been a tough one. Just trying to keep it going and moving forward and, you know, everything else that, you know, just trying to keep it keep it going. <laughs> Things running smooth now, finally. You know, just trying to, uh, working on a lot of new music and coming out of this, you know, crazy pandemic. I know there's a lot of tours. I mean, you know, there's a lot of stadium this, tours and blah, blah, blah. But a lot of this stuff was, you know, already booked before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it's, you know, the shows are makeup shows and what have you. But every day is a whole new journey. That's the best way of looking at it, mate. Totally. Dude, so shall we just dive in? Yes. I like to say I can do these in an hour, but I'm speaking to Mark Torian. And I know he's got lots of stories. So um, we'll see. Oh, my God. Stop it. (laughs) Awesome, bro. First up, though, bring us up to speed on life in the Bullet Boys camp. Latest single, Holy Fuck, new lineup, but still the same fire from Mark Torian. What's going off? Well, how would you say we're rising like a phoenix from the ashes of completely different situation? Very happy about what we're doing right now. Myself, Ira, Fred, and Brad, it's kind of like, um, I would say like a mini super group that uh, we were able to all put together. And for all intents and purposes, we are just working on writing a really, really amazing record. I mean, these days, a lot of people are not trying to constantly do that or putting out new music or they're just going out and just reliving the old songs and stuff. I get it. But I don't know. With me, new music is always the lifeblood of you know moving forward and creating is the biggest thing for me. You more than most of the bands of that genre have like really stood by that. I mean, you've been constantly releasing albums. Oh, thanks, Robbie. Yeah. I don't know. You know, when we all leave this planet, what's going to be here forever is music. So I'm a song chaser. I'm always, you know, trying to write the best stuff I can. And it's different now. A lot of people don't have the respect for songwriting as, as much as they used to. The climate of songs and writing songs is a whole different scene now. I mean, rock music aside, there's, you know, so many different genres of music and what have you. And, you know, so you just try to stick to what you know for me. Saying that, though, you're constantly being influenced and inspired by new artists. You're always pimping new talent out there yes whether it be on twitter like i'm digging this guy or i like this band or this singer or stuff i just have a lot of respect for artists that step out of their own skin and just you know are trying to do something on a a loving level of putting out new music and not necessarily how would you say trying to put out a political view with their music but just to put out just music for music's sake Mm -hmm. and to be uplifting with their music and what they're talking about that's the one thing that i really enjoy with a lot of the new bands it's hard to, Robbie, to say like, okay, this is a great new band and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, what about this new band? How come you don't like them? It's like, well, yeah, it's like, you know, I'm, you've known me for, for many, many years. We played with each other in this band, traveled together. I have a soft spot in my heart. I have a very punk rock heart, but I also grew up with R&B music and jazz and rock and roll. But when it comes down to it, I always come down to the two things that, where I started, which was like R&B music and punk rock music, which is a dichotomy of sorts. That's a pretty unique combo. <laughs> yeah, it's very strange, I know. And jazz on top of it. And lately, I've been listening. There's a station out here in LA, Robbie, a college radio station from Cal State Long Beach. It's 88.1. Play amazing jazz music all day long from um, Wes Montgomery to uh, Miles Davis to 
Tito Puente, it's all over the place, right? <laughs> so so I've been listening to a lot of jazz music as of late because um, I've been gravitating to it more after my father's passing because that's what he used to listen to, you know? But getting back on the point, there's a lot of great new bands. I'm sure you're familiar with one of them that's uh, out of the UK, uh, Young Blood. Oh yeah, Jane loves Young Blood. Dom's out there tearing it up, bro. I mean, he reminds me of me when I was young and the spirit of Axel and Baz and, and guys that, you know, that back in the day that we did it, he has those inklings of, uh, how would you say it, just crazy, got that great punk rock spirit, but he, he's also rock and roll and, and he's also very loving to his fans. Yeah, definitely. That to me makes him a winner. It's that connection, isn't it? Yes. It reminds me of the old connections that we had when we were doing in-stores and those type of things. He's kind of taken an old school approach to it and put himself out there very accessible to his fans. You know, it just bodes well. It's just, he's just, a, it's like a bomb exploding on stage when I see him perform. And it's just like, God dang it. You got to love the guy. He's talented. I love the fact that he gets on and shares with people that he's not having a good day today. You know, sometimes his head's all over the place. That's pretty important these days, I think, especially for younger yeah. bands to do that. I have kindred spirits with that. I mean, I think we all have that issue sometimes coming out of this, how's another way to put it? Uh, plague. Incident. This plague. <laughs> oh, incident. <laughs> yeah, this incident that happened across the world. You know, everybody's trying to figure it out now, Robbie. And, you know, and I love to see a kid like him. He's tearing it up on stage, throwing it down. His band's great. The songs are great. They have simplified beauty to them. Very rock and roll and punk rock. He's not trying to write, you know, these pop ditties or anything. He's just doing his thing, which is great to watch, you know. I'm going to touch on it a little. We had um, a one-off full Bullet Boys reunion going way back to... New Year's Eve 2011. Then uh, 2019, you did another reunion. Everyone was so excited about that. None more so than probably myself and Kevin Baldez from Lit. Right, right. But unfortunately, things crumbled once again. But you bounced right back. Within weeks, you were fulfilling shows with a new lineup and straight back to writing new material. Where does this like thick-skinned attitude of yours come from? You're like unfaltering year after year, just forging forward. Because that recent reunion breakup, that must have been a blow to all of you, especially with everything else that was going on at the time. Well, I walked back into the original band and uh, when this whole thing imploded i took a lot of heat from a lot of um, how would you say um, people that think that they have an idea of what happened but they really don't know the inner workings of the band i haven't done an interview explaining to people because i just feel that a guilty man is out bringing like a donkey an innocent man as quiet as a mouse and it uh, really broke my heart and hurt my heart to see a lot of the people coming on to different sites, the social media sites and hammering me and saying awful things to me. And it broke my heart. And really, to be honest with you, I really didn't want to do this band anymore. Didn't feel like doing it. My father had just passed away from COVID. You know, there a lot of things that have been going down in my personal life. And I'm just looking down. All I've been trying to do is keep this band and put out some great music. You know, I haven't played with the original band for years. They left in the 90s. I've just kept on moving forward. I was taught that by my mother and father, who are amazing musicians in their own right, played uh, in big bands. You know, I grew up in a, how would you say, um, stage parents type of, you know, they were all about that. Hollywood parents, you know, don't get up there unless you're, you know, your performance at the top level. Don't get up there fat all that kind of stuff. And don't ever give up. Don't ever let anybody shatter your dreams or shatter what you're trying to do. Was that instilled into you from like super, super young? Yeah, Robbie, really, really young. My father never, he would never, how would you say, not appreciate, but he would never accept a quitter. Right. He raised me never to quit. 
which is a hard thing to do too, because there's, you know, every day I wake up and go, man, I'm so done with this, <laughs> whatever it is, the stress of it, these meetings and arguments, the original guys were going through. And here's the thing. I have no ill will toward the fellows at all. I don't know what the whole situation was, but sometimes people have illusions of grandeur of how business runs or how bands get to the next place. And you know what, Robbie? It's a lot of hard work and it's a lot of accepting situations or people for who they are and loving them irregardless and moving on and finding common ground and sitting down at a parlay table. You know, you move things forward business-wise, but sometimes people in their heart and mind, they just don't have the ability to do that. And they want to... I don't know, just kind of live in the past. I don't know. It's a hard thing to say. You know, I'm not, I don't know what's going on with different folks at different times, but I had a great time for a little bit with them. I tried desperately to write new music. They didn't want to do that. So, you know, it's just this constant battle. And, you know, the manager at the time, Larry Moran, was really pushing and trying to help us out. And God bless him. He tried his best with it. But those three guys haven't been doing a lot of stuff, touring and what have you. They put together something and they played. But I don't know. People are in different spaces in their lives. And me, I'm always in that space of let's tour. Let's write new music. Let's go out and perform. It's real simple, you know. And now I'm very, very blessed and feel very fortunate that I'm working with Ira, Brad, and Fred. They're amazing guys. Me and Ira are working constantly, writing new music. We got a lot of different things, projects. We're writing scores for movie right now, soundtracking. So new music is a staple for me. And the biggest thing, I am here for the fans. I've always been here for the fans. I'm always trying to put something out that the people hopefully that they will dig. Holy fuck was just an amazing situation. We're writing. I started working with Ira. I was working on a side project that I came with them called The Secret Weapons of Love. I love that name. No, thank you, brother. <laughs> <laughs> it's really punk rock. It reminds me of like the 60s music. You know, it's got this really nice spin on it, borrowing from Motown, but yet kind of borrowing from old punk rock scene, you know, that raw sound, but with me singing over the top of it with this really cool R&B-ish type of flavor. So... We started doing this thing and the song came on. Everybody's loving the song and we're getting ready to drop it. And, and, you know, Ira turns around to me and he goes, hey, man, you know, what do you think about doing a Bullet Boys record? Like writing a single and telling you know everybody to just to F off. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, that sounds great, you know. But, dude, we jump into this thing and you got to jump. You got to jump into it and it's going to be a while. He goes, I know you have tons of music written for this because all the music you wrote for the original thing you know and he's listening to all this music he goes we gotta put this stuff this sounds incredible he goes i have this tune you know i have this riff in the song let me send it to you man i think it's great you know it's a banger you know blah 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 so he sends me this track and i listen to this track and i'm going like this track's really good it's got this different sound to it and before it was a little bit more all over the place there's different time signatures and different things so i said listen man let's just fix up these time signatures i think i got some shit for the song so it happened really really quick and we just kind of fell in love with the track and we just started really working on it. Came out to be this like kind of little monster. We shot the video all guerrilla style, Robbie. We didn't have a huge budget. You know, we took some time to go and shoot it when no one was around. We should be arrested in handcuffs for some of the stuff for real. You know, we're running around and everybody, the cops are out when I'm going down the street. Okay, hold on. Act like you're just smoking a cigarette. So it's just this whole thing all the time. We shot downtown. I wanted to bring the essence of the LA downtown scene. It's really changed a lot down here. It's very gritty, but very arty and so many different lifestyles and origins in downtown now. And 
just to capture that feeling at night down there was really a big win for us, you know? Superb, man. Like we said at the top of this conversation, I've been wanting to sit down with you for a while because you've done so much through your history. You're not just this guy who came to Hollywood with big dreams and made it. There's a heck of a lot more to your history. And I guess it starts in the town of Montebello, California. So um, take us back to them being a kid during the late 60s, growing up in the 70s, because that was a hugely important time. Simply, like you said, from the influence of your two amazing parents, Carmen and Joe. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Robbie. So how was it growing up there? Montebello is like an oasis within an oasis. It's a pass-through city, but it's one of those sleepy towns. Just grow quiet. I was saying yesterday, I was cruising around with my sister, and I said, you know what? Montebello is like a sleepy town. There's not a lot of craziness and inner city violence and all that crazy stuff. And I was very fortunate to grow up here. Are you the eldest of the kids? No, the eldest is my older sister. Right. You got three sisters, right? I'm kind of like in the middle. I have three sisters. Yes, I do. But I'll tell you one thing about Montebello. People are really kind here. In fact, I've just actually moved back here for a stint to be closer with my mother and uh, my sisters. There's different things that have to be looked over, properties and my father owned and everything else. So I kind of just been staying here for a little bit. Just a bit of a reset, I guess. Yeah, Robbie, a bit of a reset. You know, this past months with everything and I just feel really beat up mentally, you know, just kind of just like, wow, man, I don't even know if I really want to do this anymore, you know, but it's been nice to giving you a call though and chatting with Mm -hmm. you and commiserating with you. (laughs) But yeah. What are some of like your earliest memories? I guess the musical ones though, because didn't you used to go to shows with your dad when he was playing? One of the most striking remembrances was seeing Black Flag in a backyard party out here in Pico Rivera many, many years ago. That was one of my first shows in a backyard party was seeing Black Flag. My sister's boyfriend at the time, he was supposed to be, you know, like kind of like babysitting or watching me, you know? So I don't know what's happening. My parents were gone. She was doing something at her high school. And he says, hey, you want to come with me? I got to go get something. So I said, okay. So I ride with him in his car and he goes to this house and going like, what's going on? So he goes, just, you know, just hang out with me for a little bit. So he takes me to this backyard party and there's this band black flag playing this backyard party and people going nuts and moshing and like what is going on here it just seemed like whatever we evidently had to pick up beer from his friend or i have no idea but we were there for a little minute and then we were gone what was your musical reference before then just hearing the stuff your parents were playing oh my gosh yeah just everything under the sun musical influence i would say stevie wonder credence clearwater revival i mean stuff like my dad was playing cream big clapton fan from there, we go to Miles Davis, Wes Montgomery, Getz, who else, man? Just every single, Stan Kenton, Frank Sinatra. Everything was in the mix. <laughs> yeah, everything is just all over the place. When did you first see your dad perform? I got to see my father perform when we were growing up. In some of those places, kids couldn't go in. Right. Now kids can go everywhere, it seems like. But, you know, back then with the, uh, how would you say, the bourbon drinking, cigarette smoking crowd of the late 60s, early 70s, my mom and dad would get all dressed up. He'd go play. He'd have his trombone case. You know, back then he used to dress in tuxes. Wow. So, yeah, the first time I, I saw my father, one of the first times, he used to do musical theater. And he put an orchestra together and he was performing in this orchestra for a college that was doing the musical, The Bells Are Ringing. Really old musical theater thing. And he was playing in the band. That's when I remember first seeing him actually perform. Did I remember your time he used to like smuggle you in his van to shows and stuff? Was you actually playing at those shows or was you just, yeah, he just needed a hand loading the gear or something? He would smuggle me in his Dotson station wagon and he'd pack all the stuff and then he'd put me in the back and then shut the door on the back of the thing. 
I would ride to the show with him there. He used to do a lot of bar mitzvahs and weddings. Him and his brother would, you know, have this offshoot band. They'd come and play. And he was always doing something musical, my dad. It was always something. I love that. What was the first musical instrument you tried? Was it guitar or did you try any of the big band stuff, which your dad was doing? I think hand in hand would be guitar and cornet horn. Right. Yeah, I played a cornet horn. I had to go at playing the trombone, but that's a whole other instrument, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, my thing was cornet, trumpet. I wish I would have still kept it. I just didn't have the lip for it, Robbie. Have you always sung, though, from a young age? Oh, yeah, my whole life. When did you discover this soulful voice, which you became known for? Very young. My mother and father were very marveled at it because they didn't know where it came from. And, you know, it came from them, all the music we used to listen to. I mean... Jackson 5 and Marvin Gaye and, you know, they constantly were playing Motown for me and it was all about Motown. My mother loved Nat King Cole. In fact, when they were very young, they've gone to see them a couple times, you know, and my mother was a background singer for some big bands. She background sang for Frank Sinatra's group. Stan Kenton's group. My dad played with those guys oh, too. Oh man, they must have totally encouraged it once they realized you had this voice. They must have thrived on that, thought that was the greatest thing. You know, it wasn't really. It was more like, just be good. Okay. Okay, you got a great voice, but you got to be really good. You know, you have no idea. You have to do this, you have to do that. My parents were never the parents that would stroke your ego. Right. It was never good enough. So that's the one hard thing I grew up in. It's never like, oh yeah, that was really good tonight. God rest his soul. May he rest in peace. The last show my dad saw, you know, he was always a critic. You know, I said, what do you think, dad? He goes, <laughs> he's hard Joe, bro. He's like, yeah, it's good. It's like, okay, it's good. He goes, yeah, it's a little out of tune in places and stuff. But you did a good job. You did a good job. Wow. Hard Joe. I love that. Yeah, he was hard Joe, dude. <laughs> My mom, too. She goes, oh, yeah. She goes, yeah, it was good. You know, it sounds like you need a little rest, but, you know, it was pretty good. And then other shows, they would just be like, wow. My dad would be like, that just blew me away. Everything was just mm. perfect. It sounded great. So when he made that compliment, like a proper positive compliment, you knew it had been a good show. Yeah, absolutely. But they're both very critical. Very, very critical. When did rock and roll come into your life? Was it through the likes of Van Halen and Kiss or was it like the Black Flag backyard party? I would say since then. Anything that I could get my hands on that was like, you know, rock and roll, it really different for me. You know, R&B was like my rock and roll thing. You know, right. I love Frampton. You know, Humble Pie was a big thing for me. That was a, another big band that I used to, Jeff Beck, the Yardbirds. When I get down to the get down, what it was I really listened to when I was a little kid, those were the bands. Was another band. Oh my gosh, of course, Jackson 5. My music was always intertwined with R&B. So that was the biggest thing for me that I'm feeling blessed that that happened to me because some guys or musicians, that doesn't happen to them. They grew up with heavy rock or you know, pop or what have you. And, you know, I just grew up with the kind of like a smorgasbord of musics with it leaning toward R&B and jazz, basically, you know. How much awareness of Hollywood just down the road from you did you have growing up? Is it somewhere your family would go in the 70s, like Disneyland and stuff like that? Or was it this far off land? Montebello is such a stone's throw away from Hollywood that it was a constant thing. Yeah. My mother was always involved in the Hollywood lifestyle, politics, all kinds of different things, you know. And Disneyland was a big thing. We grew up with a very much of a Disneyland mentality. That was a big thing. We, I didn't grow up in a wealthy family. So we would go to the beach in San Diego or we would go to Disneyland and my parents would take us there. You know, it's like nothing was like these grandiose trips to here or there everything was really small you know just chill the beach here and there but yeah did you play out in hollywood at the troubadour with a high school band if i've got my 
picture yes. right. Is that when David Lee Roth and Alex Van Halen came out? Yes. Yeah. I was really fortunate, Robbie. And when I first started playing the Troubadour, I ran into this guy who was playing in Angel, which was Greg Jeffria. He kind of just took me underneath his wing. Really sweet guy. First of all, I should go back. I digress. There was a rehearsal studio that I was rehearsing at, and it was up in the valley. The studio was called Rosemary's Baby Studio. We were this, you know, this shitty three-piece high school band trying to do our thing. And the people that were rehearsing at this place were big rock stars. Right. You had Angel rehearsing there. You had Missing Persons rehearsing there. And then you had Eddie Van Halen rehearsing there with Tim Bogart and Carmine Apiece at the time. They were doing some weird three-piece thing. Wow. When we walked into this place, we were just these complete nobodies from Montebello in this high school band thought we were big rock stars rehearsing in this big room. And the guy who owned the place was a friend of my bass players. So he would give us a really good deal. And, you know, we would go rehearse up there. One day we were rehearsing and literally like a dream, Greg Jeffria, Barry Brandt and Punky Meadows come walking in. We were just completely like almost had heart attacks. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck is going on? They're going, no, keep on playing. You know, are you the singer? It's like, wow, we can hear you next door. It sounds great. Blah, 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 blah. So we meet them and they loved us. And Greg just kind of took me under underneath his wing right there started inviting us over to listen to them rehearse and watching them rehearse was just like okay we are so not even a minuscule close to what the real deal is you know it's like fuck okay but he would just kind of come in and they would hang out with us and asking what are you doing you know is there anybody helping you out i've never heard anybody sing like you and you can play like incredible guitar you know i know eddie van halen i was like wow really it's like yeah he rehearses like right next door to us and Greg was really good friends with Terry Bosio. So he'd go, you guys come in here and listen to this band. They're called Missing Persons. And then we walk in and we get to see them rehearse. It's like, wow. And Dale Bosio was just like, she was so beautiful, Robbie. Mm -hmm. Like we were just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> like, <laughs> and when she talked to you, she's like, oh my gosh, she talked to us. You know, it's like, it was one of those type of things, you yeah. know? It's like, oh, there's some punk rock heroes. Oh, fuck. And that really helped us because you just automatically start getting better when you start hanging out with these people and you're listening to them rehearse. And oh, God, yeah. It makes you step up, definitely. I met Greg and then told him the situation, how I met David and, and Alex. And it's like, wow, they came over. So they saw you play. They liked it, blah, blah, blah. So we started hanging out more. And then he just started bringing people to my shows at the Troubadour. So one of the two guys he would bring was Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley because he knew them really well. So he had guys like that coming to my shows when I was playing when I was a kid and people just didn't understand it. They go, what the hell's going on? What was the name of the band you was doing? Like the three piece? What was it? The band was called My Last Name, which is Torian. That was it. Yeah. It was a three piece band and I sang and played guitar and we did Bowie. We did original songs and nothing was, I mean, at a high level as far as original songs but greg really loved the way i sang and the way i play guitar so that was the big catch and then he would constantly bring people in to come and see me play at a very high caliber so i was really fortunate you met david lee roth and alex van halen and i think you like got a friendship with them and they kind of let you into the inner circle a little bit you used to yeah. go to like van halen tour rehearsals but oh yeah they weren't just in a rehearsal studio they were like almost full-on concerts with like hundreds of guests right oh yeah oh yeah they would have these uh two-week rehearsals in these big giant facilities there's a place called zoetrope studios these <laughs> they're big giant movie like how would you say it like airport hangers you know they're these okay big giant places and they would rent it out and invite she's like 100 200 people a day they would do it every day for two weeks and they would show people the whole show what album would it be do you remember i would say 
women and children first. Oh, man. <laughs> Fair warning. Diver down. I got to hang out with that. And then, you know, when they came out for 1984, it was a whole different thing. But I was very fortunate because the brothers, they loved me because, I don't know, man, I, I still say it, I think because I grew up in Montebello and they grew up in Pasadena. Right. So it was, there was this kinship of where we grew up at. And, you know, when I was really young, also David would come and pick me up at my mom and dad's house in his skull and crossbones Mercedes. Because <laughs> I don't know, it's just he used to like to hang out with me, taught me a lot of different things. I think one of the reasons why he really liked me too is because we could speak Spanish to each other and no one knew what we were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and David was all about the Latino culture. I mean, his first girlfriend was Latino. When my sister was really young, my younger sister, he really liked her. And he was just a sweetheart, always real kind to me, always, you know, really sweet. Michael, just a sweetheart. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I just saw Michael about a year ago. He turns around to Sammy and Jason and Vicky. He hugs me, he goes, Real Van Halen family right here, y'all. Oh, right here. Mark Torian. Man. You know? Priceless. Known this kid for a long time, man. One of the best. One of the best. They're just lovely and beautiful people. And, you know, we lost Ed. I still get very teary-eyed mm -hmm. sometimes. I'm sitting around going, man, out of all the folks, man, why can't he still be here? Yeah. You know? But very lucky, blessed that I got to see some of these huge concerts and be invited when they were in their prime. And I've got to see so many things. I could go on for hours here with you with the things that I've seen backstage. and Save that for the book. Yeah, right? For real. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, you're chatting about this stuff and people go, is that guy completely full of shite? Or did he really do that? And, you know, is he making up all this shit? It's like, how could you make up something like that? It's just like, it really happened. You know, I was very, very fortunate and very blessed to hang out with some of the greatest musicians. And I do have to give Greg Jeffrey a lot of credit. He was my mentor. He brought me into this business. I don't like to just wash over the fact that he took me underneath his wing and taught me a lot and taught me also too about the scary part of the business and what not to get caught up in. And I think that's probably why I'm still doing what I'm doing. I was very blessed to be signed with Motown when I was very young. Do a lot of stuff before the Bullet Boys was even around. So kind of learned to just pick yourself up by the seat of your pants and carry on no matter what. That's one thing I want to touch on because, I mean, as we move into the early 80s, a lot of things start to happen for you. You get an audition for Ozzy Osbourne's band. You get offered the job, but the story goes they felt you were too young and it was too soon after the passing of Randy Rhodes yep. to have this hotshot young guy in the band. So they let you go. I mean, how yep. does something like that affect you at such a young age? Because that's not just a good gig. That's a life-changing opportunity that slips through your fingers, but ultimately it's out of your control. So um, is it stuff that Greg taught you? Like, look, something else will come along or this is just how the business works. Yep. You know, it was, what's crazy is that that's exactly what happens. You know, you know, like I was just on a side note, I waited for three days at my parents' house for a car to come and pick me up and that car never came and picked me up. They never called me. They never said anything. And then all of a sudden we get a call, you know, from England and Sharon and she's telling us, you know, they got another guitar player. We're so sorry. She talked to my mom. She was very classy. Said, you know, I think Mark's just too young right now. Who knows? Mm -hmm. But that's basically what happened. And when I was playing with the band for a little bit, Rudy was so kind to me and just showing me the ins and outs, just a sweetheart. And Ozzy was just such a great teacher. Showed me a lot of things. He pulled down a movie screen, showed me like film of Randy playing. Wow. Yeah, just incredible stuff and cooked food for me. And he was just a sweetheart, man. But what happened after that is that when they did let me go, I've always been really close with Stephen Piercy and Rat. Those guys were my guys. They're one of your favorite bands, right? Oh, yeah, dude. Definitely. They were definitely one of the supreme bands out of LA. 
I have mad respect for Steven. I love him to death. So Steven's like, we were hanging out and doing all this stuff. And, you know, Steven's like, hey, listen, man. He goes, what do you think about being a rat playing in my band? Hell yeah. Robin wanted it. And he was just like, yeah, man, we want you to join the band. So it's like, fuck, cool. They weren't down with Warren at all. So kind of threw him out and brought me in and just played all kinds of stuff. Me and Robin were always writing. And one of the things that came out of there was some really great songs. And one of them was You Think You're Tough, which is Rat's first single. Unreal, man. But then comes something of a left turn and you land this deal with Motown Records. Was this after, let me get this right, was, it, was this after Benny Medina heard your vocal on the Cagney and the Rat songs, Emotions? or Benny Medina and Kerry Ashby Gordy Jr. brought me in to sing that song. Right. Because... The guy that was the lead singer at the time, he couldn't sing that type of stuff. He could sing the pop stuff, but he says, listen, man, you got to come in. I think you could play guitar in this group that I'm in. I'm signed to Motown, but they want to hear your voice. So I was like, you know, here's the song they want you to sing. Learn the song and come in and sing it. So literally I learned it and I just thought I was coming in for an audition Mm -hmm. and I sang the song and they loved it so much that they just had me start recording it right there. Just like that. Motown Records. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, one or two takes. Hey, you can't sing or in key or anything, you get out of here. So being with Motown Records, Robbie, wow. That was just like, still to me, is one of the highlights of my career. Because other than I think Neil Young or Rare Earth, there hasn't really been a rock band or rock guy that's been signed with, you know, Motown and come out of there. Just a real quick shout out, big love and shout out to Benny Medina and Carrie Ashby Gordy Jr. Those guys were the guys that took a chance with me and said, this guy's talented. Carrie introduced me to his father. His father, you know, when I first met him, kind of laughed and said, I don't know who you are, but you're ridiculous. And where do you get that voice? <laughs> <laughs> Basically, you know, smiled and laughed at me. And said, I don't know where you get that voice. You're just ridiculous. Who are you? (laughs) How old was you at the time? Oh, my gosh. Young, man. Early 20s, you know. Was it through Motown you began working with Elder Barge? No, that was actually a little bit before that. Oh, right. Okay. Me and Al were friends. I was working as a kid at the old guitar center in Hollywood, the first one. And then he would come in there all the time, you know, in the barge and chatted up and we would hang out and laugh and everything else and one day he calls me up and he says listen man i'm going solo and i want you to be my guitar player and i said are you for real with it he goes yeah because i'm putting in a salary you're not working at that place anymore let's go that was it he took me and we started rehearsing and it was the who's johnny tour which was a very long tour we were opening up an amazing group two singers called ashford and simpson they were gigantic at the time and man he took me everywhere it's the first tour i've ever done in my life we were everywhere everywhere you can he was such a huge star and just so driven and you know i got to give him a lot of credit because that's what drove me to get and do something in the bullet boys as hard as he was working every day and you know back then robbie he had like 10 keyboards and he had to sequence them all together every day to be playing backgrounds doing all these things it was a chore that i've never ever seen anybody do and he was so good at it and then bobby debarge was in the band too so he was kind of like the musical director and he was in a band called Switch that was gigantic back in the day. You know, if you looked them up, they were just like these superstar rock stars, the band. So Bobby kind of took me under his wing and, you know, he kind of showed me the ropes out there and what's going on. And he'd wake me up in the morning sometimes and open up the bus thing and just start pushing me and shoving me. And go, what are you doing? He goes, get up. I want to box with you. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and they were both golden gloves, both Al and him. So I was like, no, nah, I'm not doing that, man. He goes, Torian, get up. I'm going to start smacking you right now. Listen, Torian, one of these days, you're going to have somebody in your face and you're going to have to hit somebody in the mouth. So I'm going to show you how to do that. <laughs> wow. So Bobby DeBarge would show me how to box, dude. <laughs> 
<laughs> Most importantly, didn't Al set the seed for the title of Smooth Up In You years before it was written and recorded? Both me and him had a little saying. He'd have these beautiful girls around him and all the time. And he'd always tell me, man, Toy, and see that girl up there? But I'm going to go smooth up in her. <laughs> so that was our thing. You know, we'd always say, blah, 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 smooth up. And he would tell a girl, girl, I'm going to go smooth up in you. He'd go, Al, stop saying that. That's so nasty. Why are you saying that shit? It's so nasty. It's smooth. It's like smooth, like silk and beautiful amazing cat you know you'd have all these just beautiful models around him all the time and just constantly throwing these little cool little soirees after the show and i told him one day i said one of these days dude that you know we, we say smooth up all the time i'm gonna write a song called smooth up in he goes mark torian good luck getting that played on the radio and he's like he would laugh at me because you'd never be able to write a song called that it will never get played on the radio so after the song came out and everything, I haven't seen him in years. And one day I walked into Warner Brothers and he was in there playing piano in Benny Medina's office. So I walked in, he didn't see me and Benny's looking at me and he's laughing and he turns around and he just fucking like tackles me on a couch and starts like trying to fucking tickle me and hit me. And he goes, where's my money? He tells me. <laughs> He goes, you did it. I love you. Oh, my God. I don't know how you did it. Where's my fucking publishing money? He says. <laughs> <laughs> We're just crying, laughing. So he goes, I can't believe you did it. He goes, well, rock and roll is a different thing. You can get away with that stuff in rock and roll. I said, no, we, we actually couldn't. Uh, I said, we have to call the song Smooth Up. Otherwise, they wouldn't play it. It's like, oh, shit. He says, your voice is incredible. Wow. The record's incredible. Congratulations. And I told him, it's because of you. You're the one that showed me how to do this, you and Bobby. So great that you've met all these people which have had like these definite effects on you and push in these certain directions. It's so cool, man. It's so cool. For what it's worth now, I mean, it's such a different scene now. I'm very, how would you say it? I'm, I'm really blessed and lucky that I grew up to have such amazing, badass, old school musicians and people around me. You know, it's just different times now. But listen, man. My band never got as big as Guns N' Roses or any of these huge acts, you know, that you see. But I'm very humble to the fact that I was able to do what we do, you know, and can still continue doing it on the level that we're doing it and keep on pushing, man. Keep on pushing. Before we get back into hard rock territory, Rockwell, what's your involvement? I knew Rockwell. I knew Kennedy Gordy. He called me up one day and he said, I have a single. I said, okay, let me play it. So I went down and he played it to me in his car and he goes, hey, man. My unk got Michael to sing on the song. I said, what? <laughs> so he goes, check it out. You know, he sang last night. So he's playing the song. The chorus comes and I'm looking at him. And he's looking at me. He goes, Mark, I think I have a hit song. I said, well, of course you do. It's Michael Jackson singing. He goes, besides the point, I wrote the song. I think it's a hit. It's like, fuck. And sure enough, we're sitting there. And he goes, Mike's still in the studio. I said, what? I'll never forget this. We're sitting in the parking lot. And he goes, oh, shit, there he is. Comes out the front door. This is the only closest I've ever gotten to Michael. And we're sitting and we're looking in the car. And there he is. And he's waving at Kennedy like he's leaving. And Kennedy waves at them. And that was it. And I go, bro, I got to meet Michael right now. He goes, can't do it. I go, why? He goes, he's been in the back room the whole time. He, that's the first time he came out. Now he's leaving. And he goes, I want you to come in. You know, I'm doing Soul Train and stuff like that. You got to be in my band, bro. So I was like, okay, no problem. But I'm not playing in the song. It doesn't matter. Just act like you're playing it. <laughs> <laughs> so you did some like TV stuff with him. Oh, yeah. Soul Train, all kinds of different stuff with him. I love him, man. He's such a sweetheart. One thing I've always wanted to know about, I never got a chance to ask you. It's one of my all-time favorite songs, and I don't think many people know this, but around 1983, 1984, you had a band which recorded the song Sweetest Victory from the Rocky IV soundtrack. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to leave it there for you to fill in the blanks because I want to know about this because it's an incredible song. Wow. 
I was living in Marina del Rey at the time, and um, a friend of mine, old friend of mine, had become extremely wealthy selling gold coins as an investment vehicle. This wasn't how I expected it to start. <laughs> right? You know, just I'm young, have no idea what the heck's going on, but he's a friend of mine, and he rolls up and he says, hey, listen, I got this business, blah, blah, blah. I live in Marina del Rey, and I'm building a studio in there. Would you help me come in and help me build the studio and help me with my voice and, you know, stuff? I said, yeah, sure. So started hanging out with this guy and he had a beautiful place in Marina del Rey, really nice house. And then one day he just said, Hey, listen, man, you know, instead of you driving all the way from over here, you want to move into my crib? That'd be great. And I was like, cool. Moved into his crib, helped him do his like Guy Friday stuff. And one day he comes back from a run and he's all pumped up, man. He goes, you got to get ready right now. I need to introduce you to somebody. I know it's early. Take a shower, Mark. Let's go. I want to introduce you to this guy. Just met him. He's from a band called Cactus. His name's Dwayne Hitchings. And he said he wrote this song for a Rocky movie. And they're looking for a singer. And I told him about you. Sure enough, go out there, meet Dwayne Hitchings. He plays me the song. There was a singer already on it. And he goes, you know, what do you think? I said, I think I can sing better than the singer that you have on. He goes, I would love to give you a shot at it. So a couple of days go by and calls me up. He goes, hey, you know, I'm going to set you up. You want to come in and sing the song? I said, sure. Came in, sang it in this tiny little studio, like a tiny little room that he had, probably eight tracks, something that's just real simple. You know what I'm saying? Did the demo. He plays the demo for the people that are in charge in the movie. One of the guys is Sylvester Stallone. Loves the voice. Loves it. Says the guy's in. That's it. So I was like, wow, okay. So we started, you know, working on it again. And Robbie, I sang that song I don't know how many times, bro, until I was just exhausted. They had me singing that song 15, 20 times. Where did you re-record it at? Did it go to like a proper studio? Yeah, we went and re-recorded it. Great story, but awful story. They fly me up to Todd Rodgren's studio, Bearsville, up in upstate New York. And at the time, I was just starting to get a cold. But I figured, you know, I don't know the whole thing. You know, I'm just kind of trying to go with it. So I get up there and guess who's producing the song? Jimmy Iovine. <laughs> guess who's playing drums? Drummer from Simple Minds. Okay. No way. Yep. So we got all these heavy cats. I walk in the studio. I'm scared to death. You know, hey, I'm Jimmy, blah, blah, blah. You know, we're going to do this. And yada, yada, you ready to sing? Let's let's get going. Let's, you know, whatever. And I was like, okay. Go up and warm up a little bit. And I just couldn't sing. It just wasn't happening. I started getting really worried because uh, Mr. Iovine wasn't putting up with it. He's a pro. He wasn't happy. You know, he's, you know, what's going on? Why can't you sing? What is going on here? You know, uh, you want to take a break? We'll come in later. I don't know what's going on, but this is not working for me. So he was kind of berating me and stuff like that. I remember going outside the studio into the hallway. By the way, Todd Rudgren's studio is just completely gorgeous in the middle of the fucking forest. It's just this beautiful place. And I'm literally almost in tears because I can't do what I'm supposed to be doing. And I didn't see who sat next to me. And then just kind of with my head down, person sits next to me and she goes, hey, are you okay? You know, you seem really bummed out. And I'm literally in tears and go, yeah, they flew me all the way up here. I mean, I'm not looking at this person at all and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, you know what? How old are you? I told her how old I was. She goes, we all have bad days. Don't worry about it. Sometimes it just, it's like that. And I looked up and there's Chrissy Hines sitting right next to me. Dude. <laughs> yeah, dude, I'm, I can't make this shit up. And I'm kind of just going like, I go, oh my God, you're Chrissy Hines. She goes, I think so today. Yes, I am. <laughs> you know, and I was going, oh gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm teared up. She goes, listen, do you realize how many times I've been in tears? And, and I go in the producer, I go, I don't, and I didn't know who he was at all, Robbie. I had no idea that he was, you know, just this famous guy. And I go, yeah, there's a guy named Mr. I've been in there. And, you know, he's just parading me. She goes, oh, fuck that guy. Don't even listen. To that. <laughs> like, don't even listen to that guy, Mark. 
get some rest. There's a tomorrow. Go in. Let me introduce you to my husband. So then I have no idea, but she's married to the, the singer from Simple Minds. That's her husband. Jim Kerr. Yeah. <laughs> How crazy is that? So that was my baptism of fire, as they say, really sucking when I'm trying to lay something down, feeling like the world's over. But if Chrissy Hine tells you the world's not over, then the world's not over. You got the take in the end, because it's a frigging killer vocal, dude. Oh, yeah, the take happened. Everything went down and I got a chance to spend some time with Mr. Sloan. And he was just a sweetheart, walked me through a lot of different things, hung out with me for a couple of days, went to the premiere and everything else with them. Mate. Because, am I right, the song only appeared on the soundtrack, it wasn't in the film itself, but on the recent director's cut, he's put that song back in there. I don't know. To be honest with you, Robbie, I haven't seen the new director's cut. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's reinstated the song. Wow. (laughs) Wow, that's crazy. Better check on that publishing. (laughs) Well, that's great because I'll tell you what, he wasn't very happy when they took the song out of the end of the movie because that was the song for the end of the movie. Yeah. And they ended up putting something else in. And one of the things was is that I wasn't willing to sign a record deal. And they had a deal on the table and I just didn't think it was the right thing for me. Was it all with like Scotty Brothers and stuff like that? Yes. And at the time I was advised not to. Crazy, man. Yeah, you need to check out that director's cut. I'm pretty sure it's back in there. Man, are you kidding me? I might have to give Sly a call. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Mate, we're rambling on. I want to get a few more bits in there if that's cool absolutely bro i'm probably going to miss a fair bit from the timeline but you joined king cobra after the departure of mark free but in that band was also your longtime friend lonnie vincent and guitarist mick swader yeah the band would dissolve but you would begin putting together bullet boys and you draft in i believe another montebello resident drummer jimmy deander who was a little younger than the rest of you right how did you all know each other is it just a, a hometown thing no my my sister you know she was the one that was like we were auditioning a lot of different drummers. You know, she was going like, you know, you gotta, you gotta audition Jimmy. Joey's brother is this kid's incredible. So I remember going in and seeing him play in, at his house and his, he had his drums set up in his room and he was young, but he could really play like he could really fucking throw it down. So we started having auditions and we brought Jimmy in and Jimmy meter was all over the place. I mean, he could slam out stuff and sounded great, but it just, Lonnie had a hard time dealing with that. And so did Mick, because there just wasn't at the level that they were used to playing with Carmine and everything else. So they said, yeah, he's he's okay. You know, we're going to check out some other drummers and what have you and get back out there and start rehearsing more, you know, really dedicate yourself to this craft. So he came in a couple of times and we'd already chosen somebody else. And when we started getting ready to play live shows, the drummer at the time, he wanted to go off and do some solo thing. So we were like, oh, great. All this hard work, now we got to find some other drummer. Me personally, I thought that Jimmy could do it. You know, we brought him in and he ended up playing with us, you know, and took him a lot of lot of work. But he had that drive to do it. Yeah. Lonnie was the catalyst, I got to tell you, that taught Jimmy practically everything. He worked with them, did not want to work with them, went back and, you know, they just went back from the beginning. It's just, you know, one, two, fucking boom, bam, time signatures, everything to the point where he just drummed it in his head to not to have his meter all over the place. So definitely Lonnie was the guy. So you begin racing in Lonnie's mom's garage. Yeah. What do you remember about those like early rehearsals? Was there an energy and magic right from the off? Because that's one thing that when people got so excited about the Bullet Boys reunion, it was like, right, we're going to see these four guys see that energy again. So was that there from the beginning? You knew he was onto something. 
yes, the energy was definitely there because we were, you know, struggling musicians, me and Lonnie constantly every day, Lonnie's brother grabbing power from the next door neighbor's electrical <laughs> lines and you know, stealing electricity from the neighbors and, you know, all kinds of stuff was always going down. And little Mikey got rest his soul, may rest in peace. You know, he was worked so hard with me and Lonnie to, you know, set up the cool situation in the garage. And he was always trying to build like cool drum risers and this and that and the other. I remember Lonnie's like, forget the drum risers, man. We just need a place to rehearse, you know. You know, and then we were just constantly back and forth from my house to his house, everywhere, just trying to just constantly get gigs. Because you were never really a Sunset Strip band though, right? You would play a little bit off the beaten track. No, we were never a Sunset Strip band. Ever. We started, you know, like in Carson and Torrance and Beat Cities. And eventually made our way up to start playing Hollywood, but that was not our scene. You'd play with anyone and everyone. And I think that's what gave you guys an edge. You fit with the style of what was popular. Fans of rap, Poison, Warren, LA Guns, they could dig the band, but you still had your almost punk edge right. street vibe yeah. to some of the stuff as well, which kind of set you apart. The crazy thing in the very beginning, Robbie, and it continued on, but we were pretty much set on that we thought we were like the who so we would break all our shit every show <laughs> that's expensive for starting Dude, if we were breaking shit dumping stuff over people just didn't understand that they're like why are you guys so pissed off you guys are breaking your shit after every show and stuff and Lonnie was like yeah you don't like it don't fucking come then oh man <laughs> We just did our own thing and people were like, you guys are nuts, man. But yeah, we just had that punk rock mentality. But the hardest one one time was Mick because, you know, he'd been playing in King Cobra and, you know, came in thinking he's this huge rock star. And me and Lonnie were not. We were just like trying to get our shit together and going from party to party, trying to get people to believe in what we're doing. And at first, Mick just was kind of almost arrogant. And Lonnie was like, I don't know if I want to play with this guy. He just thinks he's this dude. You know, it's like, no, don't worry about it. And Lonnie eventually got him to understand that, hey, bro, you know, Lonnie was always great at that. You know, we love you and everything else, but you're not there anymore. You're in trenches with us. So this is what we got to do now. So Mick eventually came around and realized that, oh, well, I'm not doing this anymore. But he was such a badass because of his attitude and not just wanting to be in a situation where, you know, we had control where somebody from another time didn't have control. You know, we're going to do it our way. So we just diligently started working, just wrote and wrote and played and played kind of like I'm still doing now. That paid off. You'd land a deal with Warner Brothers, working with the legendary Ted Templeman, and not just the debut, but the first three Bullet Boys albums, all of which, in my opinion, are standout records of the time in performance and outright originality. But some of it is very off the wall, though, particularly on Freak Show and Zaza. Did the label give you guys a lot of freedom, or did they just not know what to do with you? You know what? They let us have our freedom, and it was amazing because of the fact that Warner Brothers was so open to let their artists do what they needed to do, and that we were with Ted Templeman's. So right. that's another thing that really bode well for us. Right. Ted will keep them in line just enough. <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Listen, trust me. Ted was out of his mind, too. <laughs> we did learn a lot of stuff from Mr. Ted, too. Yeah. Sometimes I see some of these things like I saw his book and he had some things to say about us. And what he doesn't remember is that he was partaking in those situations with us also. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like THC Groove is the lead single for the second album, Freak Show. The song, the subject matter, and then the video. I mean, who had the balls to make the call on that? The band. Yeah. So great. Yeah. This is what we want to do. 
Ted loved the song. You know, it was what it was. It was so different than anybody. Yeah. Everybody's putting out these ballads. And we put out this thing talking about how weird the fucking the situation is about how people are just so fickle. That was the whole thing in the music business, how fickle people were and what we were dealing with at the time. And there's this punk rock dirgy song called the THC Groove. It's like, well, we can't call it the THC Groove because it's THC. That means it's the marijuana groove. <laughs> It's like, well, yeah, kind of, you know, what's wrong with that? We always did something that was a little edgy. So good, man. I remember seeing it on Ed Banger's Ball. It was the first video of the episode I saw. I was like, what is this? You popping out of the baby's pushchair. Yep. How long was that video shoot? Uh, a couple of days. Definitely the director was the one that did the Don't Come Around Here No More Tom Petty video. Ah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I got to ask your image in particular on Freak Show, very much in the style of the late Andrew Wood of Mother Lovebone with the glasses and the hat. I know you knew each other and he was a fan of the band. Did you kind of both vibe off each other's style? Because that guy was such a talent. You know, he vibed off my style to be honest with you he had told me that uh, when I first met him he was just like I had to do the whole turtleneck thing and no one's ever done that he's such a good guy and we really became friends and I thought the world of him I thought he was really amazing when we play up north he'd always come to the shows you know I never got a chance to see his band but he was just all about really digging you know my style at the time and for the freak show thing we went for like more of a 70s vibe yeah with the bell bottoms big ties, all that kind of shit. Just trying to do something different because everybody in the bands, they all started kind of looking the same. Yeah. So we were trying to do something in a fashion way to kind of switch it up a little bit. And people are going like, man, what's up with the bell bottoms? And fucking, what is going on here? It's like, yeah, dude, our new trip. Coolest thing we ever heard. And we knew that we were definitely onto something. We went to a big radio convention. Who comes walking up but Lenny Kravitz. And he goes, I just want to tell you something, man. Y'all look so badass. I'm going to put a band together and we're going to look just like you guys. We're going to wear exactly what you guys are wearing because I've never seen a band look so badass before. Man. And we were like, oh, okay, cool. So we go into a fucking in one of our limos and we sit there and smoke weed with fucking Lenny. <laughs> so we're seeing, he's telling us, fuck, man. First of all, I love you guys, but your style is shit. I got to get my whole band dressed that way. I was wearing like these bad, like Bobby Brady from the Brady Bunch flowered fucking bow bottoms. It's just, it was crazy, dude. We were out of our minds. And we were just like, okay, not really thinking about it. And sure enough, what happens? We see him and the band's all dressed up like the freak show. Yeah. And we're like, what? This guy was serious, you know? <laughs> well, I am stoked we finally got to do this. I've loved chatting yes. to you and hearing these stories. It's been amazing. Oh, me too, bud. It's a precast to the book, which should happen one day. <laughs> Please let me apologize to you. It's just my whole personal life has been completely hectic. So Mate, don't worry. I'm just glad you're doing well and things are cruising forward. You're happy and healthy and things are going good with the band again, mate. Thank you, brother. Working as hard as we can, you know, the age that we are now. And thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Well, listen, I love you. And uh, let's chat really soon, buddy. Massive thank you to Mark Turing of the Bullet Boys for sitting down with me and sharing what I'm sure is just a snippet of some of the stories from his journey out in Hollywood and beyond. I remain a big fan and always fascinated by this larger-than-life character, what he's done, and I look forward to more crazy stories and adventures in the future. Be sure to keep up to date with Bullet Boys all over social media and look out for some new material and a new album very soon. 
Once again, and I overstate it, but your support of this show is massive and with everything I'm doing with Straight to Video. Thanks to all of you who have visited the new 80s video shop in Alfreton, Derbyshire. The response and reactions to that have gone above and beyond what Chris and I expected and it's growing each week. So please check out at 80s Video Shop all over social media and we look forward to seeing you there real soon. And a big shout to everyone who supports the show through Patreon. Your help and contributions really keep this show going and I love hearing from you and getting your feedback on the episodes. If you too would be interested in supporting, you can find all the information at patreon.com forward slash stvpod. And if you're a listener still catching up on shows, then everything can be found at www.stvpod.com. That is it for episode 200 of this podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this one and enjoyed the ride so far, but there's lots more to come and I hope you'll be along with me. So till we do it again, take care of yourselves and speak real soon. 